0: Welcome back to the Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Sophia, and this month, as both my lovely co-hosts are on maternity leave this summer, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend, Father Mike Carnes. Father Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Sophia. So happy to be here.
0: Thanks for being up for this. I'm really excited about our conversation and to share this with our listeners um, because ever since the first time that I heard you speak about your life about the the path that you're walking as a Christian and as a priest, I've been struck by the clarity and the sensitivity I would say with which you perceive the events of your life as an opportunity to be in relationship with Christ, an opportunity to discover specifically that that he's the fulfillment of all of your desires. And uh, this is something that I want to learn from, continue learning from. So I've invited, for our listeners, I've invited Father Mike to come speak about what experience has taught him about living the moral life. So living holiness as memory of the facts of Christ and desire for life. Morality as memory and desire, which maybe is something of a surprising or counterintuitive definition of morality, and so... We'll get into the, the details of that in time, but I thought it would be helpful if we started with a little bit of an intro to who you are. So, Father Mike, who are you, where are you, and uh, what animates your life these days?
1: Well, I am uh, 37. I've been a priest for 10 years this May the 4th.
0: Congratulations. Thank you.
1: Yeah. You're know, like, May the 4th be with you. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> I didn't know that was the thing for years, but this year for the Diocese of Palm Beach in South Florida, I'm currently assigned to the Cathedral Parish in Palm Beach Gardens, uh, St. Ignatius Loyola. Hmm. What animates me is, you know, the daily things that happen at the parish that wake me up, the problems that I face that make me wonder and keep my questions going. Of course, always my preaching. And I'm working on a, a license in sacred theology that I've been working on for, like, six years and still trying to finish. So, yeah, I am in 26th grade.
0: <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. You and me both, man. It's brutal. I,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have not stopped studying. Um, but it's, it's a constant provocation to me, and uh, and I've learned a lot, so yeah, I'm grateful.
0: Yeah, a provocation to remember, I imagine, why it is that you're in 26th grade, like why you started it all. Um and that's one of the things that strikes me about about your path is the sort of unfolding of your life as you discerned God's will for your life and specifically the call to enter seminary. The unfolding of that path as a love story through concrete human faces. Um so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with us a little bit about why you became a priest what kinds of encounters you had with the people around you that gave birth in you to this idea of total consecration to the lord and service to his church
1: absolutely <clears throat> well i want to start by saying i'm not that guy that grew up dreaming about being a priest and celebrating mass at home you know yeah yeah, yeah. i know guys who did that and that's to- that's great I just never, ever wanted to be a priest. I never thought priests were like actual human beings. I wasn't actually sure that priests were men until uh, I was in theology and I saw a guy before he was a priest and after he was a priest and I elbowed him in the face on the basketball court and I said, he's going to go up to the altar with a black eye. <laughs> <laughs> like, like priests are men. He's real. <laughs> I was like, they're real. They bleed. <laughs> So I didn't grow up with any sort of like grandiose image like that. I just wanted to be happy. Yeah. You know, before my teenage years, that could probably, you know, it was basically like, I want to have a good time. Uh, But I really consider in a lot of ways that my life started uh, when I was 13. and I fell in love with a classmate of mine. And I remember thinking, this is real life.
2: Mm. And
1: this is what I want. And now I understand why I was born was to meet this girl. And I want to give uh, everything to her. The thing is, what I did, the moment I fell in love and discovered this kind of happiness, I also rejected God. Uh, You know, I had nuns. I was in Catholic school. I thought, I can't see God and he doesn't make me happy, but I can see this girl and she makes me happy. Mm -hmm. And the nuns are so miserable. I don't believe a word that they say about God. So uh, he's not real. QED. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was just like a vision of, you know... Fourth grade, and this nun is telling us about what her ideal evening is, mm. and she's like, a warm bath, a good novel, and and, and when she says and, I'm thinking like, well, what's, what's the third thing going to be, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's got to be, be better than a bath and a novel,
2: <laughs> yeah. you know,
1: and she says, and an apple, and I was like, What? <laughs> And I remember in fourth grade thinking that like the level of humanity of this woman was so poor that like, yeah. I would never want to give my life to God
2: yeah.
1: like that. So anyway, I rejected God. So I was trying to live this sort of hypothesis of this girl was, is the meaning of my life, which is was difficult to do at that age, you know, living with my parents. And so everybody who was like, got in the way of me and her was my mortal enemy. And I fought a lot and... What happened was as good as it was in the beginning is as bad as it got in the end. Hmm. So the happiness and joy and the promise of life that I had when I first fell in love became the total opposite. Hmm. So that ended and now I'm 14 and I want to die because I thought, well, uh, life is just this painful suffering and I'm 14 now if I live another 50 years or if I live another day, I'm going to die and there's no God. And so there's nothing. And so there's no memory or anything. So nothing matters. So why would I want to hang around? Yeah. This was the kind of thoughts I was having walking home from school one day. And I was thinking, even if it wasn't suicide, I was thinking of all the possible ways realistically I could die today. You know, like a car hitting me, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff. And I thought, well, if I'm right, then really there's just nothing. And so it's fine. And my family and friends will be sad, but eventually they'll die too. And since there's no memory, there's nothing. And so it doesn't matter. Mm. But then I had this thought, I said, what if, just what if it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, that me, because I'm baptized when I die, I'll rise from the dead. I'll get a glorified body without any suffering, eternal happiness with everybody else who has said yes to this. So then finally, I had the, the real option in front of me, yeah, nothingness or happiness forever. And that was when I like saw again, the correspondence like, no, this is what I want. I want to be happy. And so that was the first time in my life I became interested in Jesus. And I thought in that moment, I don't care what I do in life or what happens as long as I'm with him. Mm. So this was sort of like a, like a miraculous moment that I don't ever have even remembered thought about the, the resurrection or everybody having, having told me about it. But somehow in my life, that was communicated to me. So here's not like burning love for Christ, right? Here's like, I'm interested in being with this man because he makes it possible that I get out of bed. Yeah. The following year, I was in co- I had confirmation. I cried every week before class. I hated it so much. I thought they were so low level. You know, they'd have us like draw, you know, color pictures. They tried to explain the Trinity by calling it warm cherry pie. Excuse me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Surprised, yeah. nobody else seems to have heard of this uh, <laughs> image. Yeah. Because when you cut it, since the filling is warm, the filling of the three slices will goo together. So, one. Goo. Okay,
0: I'm pretty sure that's heresy. <laughs> 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 First of all. And second of all, not the most appealing way to present to 14 year olds the possibility of the existence of God. Wow.
1: Right. For me, who I was like, okay, this is serious to me, you know, so I need something serious. And this is not serious. Yeah, you know, and it was just like everybody else I had met who talked to religion before. It's like not serious, superficial stuff that anybody can learn in a second, and then it doesn't matter. But I'm walking out of confirmation class one day, and again, I had this thought. I thought, if Jesus really is God, then the only reasonable thing is to give Him everything. And since I've discovered that a girl can't make me happy because I've tried that, uh, it could be possible that giving my life to to Jesus might mean not getting married. So, yeah. So that that was the first time I became open to that possibility, that kind of radical possibility.
0: That's striking that it was in front of something that didn't correspond to what you wanted.
1: Yeah. So in high school, my life became kind of dormant and I just started saying yes to what I was told in kind of a simple way. It wasn't like subservience, but once I became interested in Christ, I said, okay, well, what do, what do Catholics do? They pray the rosary and they read the Bible. So every night I'd read a chapter of the Bible before I went to bed and I'd pray the rosary. Only I didn't know um, how to pray the rosary. so
0: <laughs> What did you do? So,
1: well, I didn't know about the mysteries. So I just knew about the Our Fathers and the Hail Marys.
0: Oh, wow. You must have been so bored.
1: Right. So every night I would pray it faster and faster and faster until finally I was like, it's not helpful. But the Bible I found fascinating up to Leviticus. I mean, I started with the New Testament that started back and then got to Leviticus and never picked it up again. Well, I mean, in seminary. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so my thing was like in high school, you know, I was with the boys. That was the thing. Like God gave me friendships since my childhood that were always there. Mm. And like this beautiful church youth group, uh, just blossomed. Like my first year in high school, we got this new youth minister and I was like, well, what is the church going to offer me? Oh, there's youth ministry. Okay. I'll go to that. So I just, you know, did whatever, whatever I was asked. I remember like my, my biggest level life question at that time was, I can't believe that I received the Eucharist and I'm still a sinner. That doesn't make sense to me. Cause like, I, I think I should be better. And I'm like, I believe this stuff, you know? But I basically lived like that until college. And with college, you know, this is going to sound terrible, but I didn't find out what what abortion was until I was a senior in high school. Really? Yeah. Mm. So when I found out, I got totally pissed. I started writing emails. You know, I contacted the diocese, asked what I could do. And they were basically like, you know, you come and, you know, pray in front of the place, but I was just about to go to college, so... So, like, they were like, check out the pro life thing up there. So I went to UCF, University of Central Florida in Orlando, and I knew I wanted to be in the Catholic Club and the Pro Life Club. That's what I was certain of. So I got there, and the people in the pro life club were all also in the Catholic Club as it worked out. <laughs> but it's there that I met this girl, and she she was fascinating because she was happy hmm. and she was real. And she knew what she was about. And she talked about like strange Catholic things like the bells of St. Mary. Oh, the movie, the movie. And like going my way. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you've never heard of this. It's like Bing Crosby, who (laughs) we started going to the, you know, the abortion center every week, uh, me, her and this other girl. And we started doing ministry. Like we were like warriors out there on campus I would argue with everybody and anybody who would, who wanted to, or didn't want to talk to me.
0: I could see that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But as it turns out, uh, you know, I had no ambitions for my life, you know, still at that Mm. point, Uh, my father got married when he was 40. And so I thought my father's a smart guy. I want to, you know, again, be happy because this is my MO. So in college, I was just thinking like, well, I'll just party and live my life and enjoy it until I'm forty, and then I'll become a priest or get married. So in college, I fought with people, I did ministry, I went and prayed outside of abortion centers, and I partied and went to keggers and played poker. Like this is 2004; it was like the the Texas Hold'em craze was insane. So, but with this girl now, I'm getting closer to her, and again, I always have this question: like, are you real or not? And I wouldn't ask this to them but I'm asking myself. You know, it's like this person claims to, you know, love Jesus or whatever, does all this stuff, but does your happiness really come from some other uh fount or is it Christ? Yeah. And with th- with this girl I was just pushed to say the only thing that makes her life make sense is Jesus. It's not her temperament. It's not because she's ignorant. She's like fully aware of all the problems. And she is the most alive person I've met. And then I discovered, uh, I discovered that she had affection for me. Mm-hmm. And that discovery for me became the discovery of, of God's affection for me, of God's love for me.
0: Through her gaze.
1: Through her gaze, exactly. And it became what burned in her chest entered into my chest. Like her heart like set me on fire. And I was overwhelmed with a desire to not waste my life. So not to become a priest, I think that's an important thing. <laughs> it was to have a great life. It was like, I have one life, I can't wait until I'm 40 to start living it. Yeah. And I just set myself, I was like, well, what, you know, how can I have the best life? Well, what better way than telling people about the reason why I can live? Mm-hmm. And what's the most visible sign of, of that presence? And I thought the priesthood, and I said, Okay, I'll become a priest. But that was the whole thing because when I look at it, you know, my first love in 8th grade, when I fell in love with her and discovered her love, I rejected God. Mhm. And so it didn't lead me anywhere. And then the, the love of this girl became absolutely the love of God. It was perfectly clear the sign. Her love was God's love. And that's what changed me.
0: Yeah. And gave birth to this desire as exactly as you said not for a form like holiness is not Perfection that we can achieve through our own hands or a life that looks a certain way. Um, but desire to be with Christ and availability to what he wants. And so for you, that meant, you know, going to seminary for other people means other things, but starting from that desire for, for a great life, for a life that is happy and fulfilling and, and from the concrete objectivity of this presence in front of you who is a sign of, the goodness of that mystery and the goodness of his desire for you. So that sounds like a, a rock solid foundation upon which to set the the path that you then followed.
1: Oh, it was it was the most going to seminary was the easiest decision I've I've ever made mm. uh, until today. Even you know like what I'm gonna have for lunch is a harder uh, question <laughs> than than back that. then. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think I know anybody who for whom, you know, the vocational path was that clear. Mm. But, you know, as it turned out, the only priest whose phone number I had happened to have become the vocations director.
0: Convenience.
1: So, yeah. So I just, I just called him and I said, Hey, father, I, uh, I want to be a priest. He said, okay, I'll send you the paperwork. I said, okay. (laughs) And it was like that. And then all of a sudden, uh, my buddy at UCF, we're doing, you know, this like high low thing at the Catholic group. It's like, what was your high of the day, the low of the yeah, day? Yeah. I was like, I'm going to seminary. And then this guy there, he's like, Really? I'm going to seminary. I was like, What?
0: <laughs> no.
1: Yeah. He got the call. And then, um, the girl who, through whom I, I met, uh, the love of Christ, a guy that she had dated, he was entering seminary. Then a professor of mine from high school, he was entering seminary. No kidding. Yeah. So it was like, there was this big movement, which for me became, Christ doesn't want me to be alone. Like he's not, he's not making me go to seminary by myself. So he's already given me a companionship to stay with me.
0: Yeah. A place where I was reflecting on exactly this, a place where the church as the objective path for living my relationship with him becomes flesh in concrete faces and presences that Yeah, like the guy you elbowed in the face, like people where his mercy and his love for me become real and experiential. They're imperfect people. But this is so important that morality is not something that we live. I think of Shia LaBeouf in an interview with Bishop Barron, he did last year, said that if you're set out in the middle of the ocean, dropped naked from an airplane in the middle of the ocean, you're free, but you're not going to enjoy it because you're abandoned. (laughs) (laughs) you can't do anything like you have limitless possibility but you're not gonna enjoy it but instead like that's not what the lord does he drops us fully clothed in the middle of a companionship of people who walk with us and help us discover what our freedom is for and to use it for that end and um yeah thank god for this and thank god you had that during seminary, especially because I'd love it if you could touch on the change that occurred in you when you reached a place in seminary where you had to give up. You couldn't. You couldn't be the perfect seminarian. You couldn't maintain uh, this life that you were trying to construct with your own hands. Would you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So I should say my big temptation in life is to moralism. So
0: same. And
1: yeah, <clears throat> and I was just thinking how that got to me. You know, apart from just the cultural context in which we live, you know, I grew up reading self-help books. So it's like, all right, let me begin with this idea that I read in this book and apply it to my life and practice it.
0: And fix it. Yeah.
1: And and right. And fix it. And then I remember reading how to win friends and influence people multiple times. And the principle of you don't learn anything by talking. So you should just ask questions and listen. And I remember with this one girlfriend, her mom was like, you never say anything. <laughs> And I was like, because I don't learn by talking, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, but I was like becoming a monster constructed out of like my head, you know. Yes, yes. So, so this turned into after discovering this love of God, I then soon afterwards pivoted to okay, I'm going to be a saint. I already have the faith because I accept all the propositions of the church, which is how I conceived of faith mm. at that time. Mm which today I think it's also a reduction and probably tending more on ideology than actual faith. But I said, so what do I need to do? Well, I said, I need to be good. So I, I, I entered on this very explicit project of, I'm going to make myself the best. And, you know, with all these stories of, you know, saints and these great penances. And so we did all these crazy, weird penances in seminary, which were totally absurd because they were not related with reality. Cause we'd be doing these, weird fasts and penances on the one hand, and then on the other hand, like, I wasn't doing my homework. <laughs> you know?
0: Yes. So it's like,
1: what are we talking about?
0: Morality completely detached from from life and the place where, where Christ dwells, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, I'll do penance on my terms. So I even tried to make a hair shirt, which is hard today, because there's not really – it's hard to find uncomfortable fabric. <laughs> so, like – Bought some like burlap sack cloth and cut it into the shape of a shirt and put it under, you know, my white cotton polo in <laughs> Miami. It's like, yeah, no one's gonna notice this. It's, like, it's the most absurd, like. So I was I was an unhappy camper, I was miserable. And they kind of proposed to us the ideal of a, a holy hour, you know, an hour of silence every day. So I'd go to the chapel to pray this holy hour. And it became the hour of just judging myself
2: mm. about how
1: terrible I am, mm. and judging my brothers and how terrible they are, and my professors and the way we do liturgy, and we don't pray slow enough, and we don't do this, and guys aren't serious enough. And then I would just leave fuming and just mm. totally pissed every single day at mass. I would just fantasize about throwing the the songbook at the priest. I thought the seminary would be a utopia, and you know because I had so much energy. I would read all the encyclicals and I would read what the church would say about herself. It's like, okay, the seminary is the heart of the diocese and therefore the heart of the church and should be this totally ideal Catholic place where the people who are going to be the leaders of the church obviously have to have a high level Christian education and they'll get that in this place. And when I didn't see that, I was shocked. I was scandalized and I thought that you know things had to be the way that I wanted them to be for me to be happy and I needed to be the ideal seminarian
2: mm. and the
1: ideal seminarian as conceived in my mind from the image that I received from you know whatever things you know yeah this story over here this story and I wasn't that and so I was pissed and I would I did the same thing I did at UCF you know I would talk to everybody and I'd fight everybody and I was never wrong and I was going to leave the seminary I was on my way out. In fact, my rector said that I was the most divisive person in seminary. Wow. And I thought that was incredible because I really didn't want that. And I didn't realize what an influence one person can have on a small community of guys. We were probably like 60 guys when I entered. From there, somebody told me to read Teresa of the The Story of a Soul. Did it help? No, I hated her. That's the whole thing. The first time I read it, I hated her because I was not doing what she did. Yeah. I wasn't living a life of grace. I was living my life based on my willpower. And so I was miserable. Yeah. And when she talks about, you know, I went from crawling to, to walking to running to flying in the advancement of the spiritual life. And here I was like seemingly just going backwards mm-hmm. and just getting worse and worse and worse and not understanding why I hated her to the point that I went to my spiritual director and I told him, father, I'm leaving because I've tried hard enough, I've pushed this to its logical conclusion, and it's not working. And he slapped his knee, he didn't hesitate, and he said, finally, finally we can begin. Because as long as you thought that you could do it, you weren't gonna do it. Wow. Now you can allow God to do it and let him show you that he who called you to this good work will bring it to completion. So here I am, not realizing that my moralistic mentality of self-help I've just taken and applied it to Christianity. Mm-hmm. So without realizing it, I was never—I wasn't actually living a Christian life. I was living my idea of it,
0: which is idolatry, is worship of an image. Absolutely, I do this literally, yeah, every day. Putting our hope in in our attempts to fulfill ourselves and making ourselves our own creator and judge, and yeah, Pharisee. Which exactly as you said about your peers in seminary, not only gives rise to self condemnation when we fail our own standards, but also condemnation of others and this rigid, exacting standard that, that is unholy. Like I was thinking about the Lord's invitation, be holy as I'm holy, and how when we read that through the lens of, uh, moralism, through like, morality as a set of rules that we can carry out coherently through our own willpower when we read that command through the lens of moralism it's ridiculous it's absurd it's clearly impossible so what instead is the lord inviting us to but like be with me like participate in my being receive my grace receive my life and this is what instead enables is exactly as your i mean praise god for good spiritual directors or your rector whoever it was so because this is what enables us to begin again like a, a child. The image that Jusani always uses is of a child who might throw a temper tantrum and his face is covered in dirt, but realizes that he still belongs to his mother. And so what he wants is is to be with her and to start again. And so no matter what terrible thing he's done, his snot's running all over his face, he still clings to her and starts again and begs for another chance like this is what can make us tireless in, in getting up from our sins, not the idea that we can do it on our own. And, and yet, this is exactly what I do in my life. And this is what I see around me in the church and in the world. Um, yeah.
1: Well, it's like reading encyclicals is great, right? But I tell people all the time, if you were to conceive of the life of the Christian just by reading encyclicals, you would get a totally unrealistic idea of the Christian life. Because of course, in encyclicals, they're always going to hold on to the ideal. And, and the perfect ideal. But you say, like, well, how is this lived in the flesh? How has this become incarnate? Yeah. And not just theory or ideal as, as idea. And so it wasn't until I was living with Christians who were really living, who I respected, who I saw were happier than me.
2: Mm. And then
1: I was like, how are you doing this? <laughs> teach me, you know? Yes. And teach me not only like, all right, let me tell you. But living together, I saw how like this one guy – I remember a lay consecrated guy. He was saying how he's all dominated by fashion. This is like a weakness he has, mm. fashion, which is not really something I struggle with.
0: <laughs> Father Mike says as he's wearing <laughs> the only outfit I've ever seen him in, <laughs> which is uh, a white T-shirt. <laughs> well, that in clerics, that in clerics, I've seen you in clerics over the white T-shirt. Over the white t-
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's my non-clerical uniform. Right. So this guy, he wants to buy these like uh he called them piratas because he's Spanish and so he wants these pirates, which are like capri pants for guys, okay? <laughs> like three-quarter pants. No, I know like totally absurd. And like a red. So I'm totally like judging this guy, but then on the other hand, I'm looking at him and I say, but he's happier than I am.
2: Mm.
1: And so like what would it be better to do, like pretend like I only like the things that what I think a good seminarian should like or be myself, accept who I am. Because this is where I saw Christ's tenderness on him. Mm. Like if he told me about Christ's tenderness, I wouldn't have gotten it. But when I saw this judgment about him, where he sees how ridiculous it is to care about fashion and and he sees that and he still says, but I'm gonna embrace this because I wanna be a saint, but I need to be a saint as a man.
0: As myself,
1: as myself, exactly, and that's not—that's something I, I hadn't realized. Like I thought, mm-hmm. being a saint meant like casting off myself and just embracing this other thing. Um, I mean, that's just one example because there's there's so many. But in the seminary, there was like camps, as I divided it. There's like the guys who cursed, who criticized the pope, and didn't pray the rosary. Okay, one side. Then there's guys who never cursed pray the rosary and praise everything the Pope said is the other camp. And I remember the first time I met a woman, this was when I met communion liberation, the ecclesial movement. So I met CL in seminary. And then this woman, she like brought together both camps. She both cursed and praised the Pope. And I was like, you know, my brain was like
0: cognitive dissonance,
1: <laughs> Yeah, cognitive dissonance. I like, yeah, think I'm a pretty smart guy, but this doesn't make any sense. And so this was like another one of those things. It's like, okay, you can have this and this. And so this is what the Christian like life looks like in the flesh. So like, what does it mean to be a sinner and be a Christian? Or what does holiness look like? Like I thought holiness meant not sinning anymore. Yeah. And then, you know, you end up reading um, Gregory the Great, where he talks about being a sinner as, as a pope, you know. And all the saints, it's not that the Christian life means you like you get to this point where you where you're you're not a sinner.
0: You stop sinning, yeah.
1: Where you stop sinning, right? No, you just become more and more certain. Everything becomes more and more based on Christ. And so I saw on myself that if if I had a willpower that was strong enough that I was able to change myself, I would have been really screwed because I never would have discovered these things. And my love for Christ would not have grown and my attachment to him. Would not have grown wow so it wouldn't even it wouldn't have even helped me if i was able to just change myself
0: exactly thank god for your weakness it makes me think of taylor swift's um anti-hero and this Mm. refrain that she repeats of it's me hi i'm the problem (laughs) it's me and i think about that all the time like every action that i do apart from god is sin but the goal of my life this is one of the things that you've helped me learn how to articulate and and try to understand and live better. The goal of my life is not to learn how to do things by myself that aren't sin. (laughs) The goal of my life is to let his grace work within me and to learn to do good, but not as something that I'm doing, but that I am available to him doing through me. And this is the only thing that yeah, like, what does it mean to live your sin and weakness in a true way? And I'm struck by your gratitude for your weakness because it enabled you to discover who Christ is for you and to actually be in relationship with him instead of relying on yourself. And, um, yeah, I wonder, like, what does it mean to live our sin in truth and in light of the fact that on our own we can do nothing, but with him all things are possible? And I think one – we're recording this during lent and one thing that comes to mind is i think a, a saint who lives their their sin truly so like not me but what i desire <laughs> is to live our sin with the awareness of god's judgment on it which is christ on the cross which is mercy to live my sin, which doesn't mean my sin doesn't matter. My sin does matter. In fact, it matters more because it's not the suffering of my ego that's like, oh, shit, Sophia, you're not nearly as good of a person as you thought you were. No, it's more serious because it's your sin is what put the Lord on the cross and it's what drove the nails into his hands. So it's more serious. And yet it's not something that condemns me because why is the Lord on the cross? But so that he could take the consequences of my sin and, um, Yeah, so, like, learning to look at him in this, not just post hoc, but, like, while I am steeped in the misery of my awareness of being a sinner, like, this is what I want more than anything, you know?
1: Yeah, and it's a path of suffering, I mean, which is unavoidable, but – because we suffer our sins. Yeah. But it becomes – like, when I was younger, the word tenderness, I would have just balked at, you know, like, get that tenderness out of here.
0: Like, it seems fluffy. I
1: want to be a soldier for Christ. It seems fluffy, Right, like coming from what I perceived as a soft Christianity, yeah, uh, or a not serious Christianity, I would have thought all that stuff. But when I got to this point where I was about to leave seminary because I was living, you know, the hard soldier Christianity that I actually couldn't do, you know, this opened me up to being wrong and like opening myself up to something else because I was at a point where I was about to stop trusting my heart for the second time. Because discovering God's love and going to seminary, and then I was miserable. Just like I fell in love in eighth grade, gave myself to her, and was miserable. Yeah. And I said, is this all a lie? And I don't know if I would have been able to recover the trust of my heart after that. But for this friendship that I discovered with people who were able to embrace the needs of their heart, be faithful to themselves without basing their happiness on the circumstances, Yeah. Like in order to be happy, I need reality to be like this and I need myself to be like this. And when I gave up on that sort of, you know, utopia and moralistic thing, it's then that I started to change. All of a sudden I became better. Mm. All of a sudden I became happier. All of a sudden people started praising me, which like I had to pick my jaw off the ground multiple times because like (laughs) I put my ripped jeans back on and my backwards baseball hat and now you're saying I'm a great seminarian yeah but this is whole thing like the entrance of of tenderness into my life where i don't get up like here's another example like i always try to do the heroic minute you know it's the first minute of the day the alarm goes off you turn it off you jump out of bed on the knees you make the morning offering the heroic minute and i did it the first morning And then, and then never again. Then
0: it was the minute of shame.
1: <laughs> then it became the minute of shame yeah. and, and judgmentalism. And I'm a terrible human being and uh, nothing matters. And I'm not loved and I can't do this. And so that became like my daily meditation mm. until I gave up on it. And then today I-, I hit the sleep button and I go back to bed every single day. And I thank God for having called me and my weakness. Yeah. And, and loving me, which is the judgment that I need. So like this guy came to me and this was such a helpful judgment for me because also it was so simple. He's like, father, I can't come to mass on time. And no matter what I do, I show up five minutes late and I've been trying and trying hard and coming up with, you know, contraptions and like methods and all this stuff. And I'm always five minutes late. And I said to him, how would it, how would it be good for you to show up to mass on time? Because let's run through a scenario. Let's say you show up on time. Now you're seated. Now you're watching other people show up late. And what are you thinking about them? Oh my gosh, they're terrible people.
0: If they just tried harder, yeah.
1: If they if only they tried harder like I did, then they could do it. Now you're smug, now you're self righteous, now you're being judgmental, and you still you don't love Christ more. Yeah. So you've embraced Christianity as a formalism instead of embracing Christ who it seems wants you to come late at this period of, of your life so that you can show up at mass and say, thank God for your mercy. And that this is, this is the real thing.
0: Yeah, that's am- That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And precisely as you indicated about the, the friends that accompany you in this and even what you were able to share with this parishioner of yours, we can't sustain this gaze on ourselves. It at least I at least immediately lapse into moralism when I'm not in relationship, and I was thinking about why like why is this the case and i I think this is that this is god's method like this is what it means that morality depends on memory like i need <laughs> I need memory, I need to remember that what I desire is Christ and that he has taken the initiative in my life um that this is the rock upon which my house is set. I need this memory, but memory is not something that I can just whip out of my soul on command. Like it's anchored in signs in reality and in, in the flesh, in the sacraments of the church, but also in these, these faces who live their own sin in a way that's truer and look at me as a sinner with a desire for my true good, which is not a self-sufficient coherence, but to live all things in relationship with Christ. And so I th- I thank God for the faces around me like yours and all of our our friends who remind me of this. And this is why I think when we are faced with crises of ideology in the church, like you name it, traditionalism, sentimentalism, what is it that we need to bear witness to in order to restore the church to the truth of morality, which is not laws and customs and the right feelings but a a living relationship it's only the expansion of our friendship what else can i give people but like guys <laughs> come be with me and learn from my friends who have taught me the true measure on my life which is the mercy of god present in the flesh and not my own ideas and learn from this friendship the nature of freedom and what it means to live a life that's that's really in relationship with him and um this too has set me free because i think sometimes i can look at what's been given me and and feel kind of paralyzed like wow how do i how do i tell others about this incredible thing that i've encountered the only thing that i can do is is continue living this friendship that regenerates me and and keep inviting people to to meet what i've met you know
1: yeah, there's a. Chisani loved uh, Bruce Marshall, the English uh, author. Who, yeah, the novelist. Yeah, and he wrote a lot about the clergy, and you know, like the Father Smith character or whoever, priest character. He's like always trying to express so much uh, to the person he's talking to, and and he'll go through everything that's going through the priest's mind that he wants to say, <laughs> but what comes out is, "Be good," <laughs> you know, like, like you know, it's like.
0: Uh, yes. <laughs>
1: it's like the struggle of, of really expressing ourselves, which which is also part of the problem is why like, you know, a presence is needed. Yeah. So an actual lived friendship in the flesh, not just uh, a dialectic. So there's both, there's both, right? There's the presence that's charged with a message. And that's the real missionary thing. I mean, your podcast with uh, Father Colin about the new evangelization and what that looks like and the living of desire, mm-hmm. which I think it's like living holiness, right? And people are attracted to holiness. Why? Because holiness is somebody who who desires life at a high level and doesn't give up on it. So they live their humanity in this way that's, that brims over.
0: Yes, exactly. Eric Varden, Bishop Eric Varden at the New York Encounter gave this beautiful talk. And one of the things that he said was that... Uh, sharing Christ with others doesn't come from going to the fountain drinking your fill and then you have enough energy and hydration to go tell people (laughs) about him It's, it's what wells up inside you is this living spring because you are with Christ in everything that you do and so he he bears fruit in you in a way that ends up attracting others and and showing them that there is an answer to their own need that there is a spring to which they can run to and that's so helpful for me as an image and yeah because otherwise it can turn evangelization or just morality in general into this like vague ethical impulse when you look at all the saints and none of them lived it that way you know like one of our podcast patrons is saint Teresa of calcutta and a vague ethical impulse could not animate anything of what she did. It, if it had, it would have been pathological instead of beautiful. Mm. What animated it was a desire to be with Christ and in a steep certainty and faith that he was present amongst the poorest of the poor.
1: That's exactly what I think that how Mother Teresa needed the poor because she needs Christ. Yeah. And Christ chose to come to her through the poor in this very explicit way. And for me in my life, that's what I see. I see Christ saves me as a priest. And so this is like, like, what does it mean to live the memory? Because, you know, I've tried lots of things. So I, you didn't know me at this time of my life. But I moved into this parish and the rectory, I took the walls of my room. And I took these huge sheets of paper and just draped them on the walls on an entire wall, and wrote out like every great quote that I knew. And I called it like my wall of memory. And I would just sit there in my chair and just stare at all these great quotes that I learned through the years that had been so meaningful for me and like this and that moment and how they helped me to, you know, take another step forward in the path. But then I would look at this wall and it would feel like nothing to me.
0: Yeah. And
1: it would yeah. not, it would not change me at all. And I thought, this feels terrible. <laughs> how can I think of Christ and remember him in a way that changes me? So I can't. I can't, just like you said, I can't artificially create the memory of Christ. I need to, I need to live. And it's in living that things happen, that those things awaken me Mm -hmm. and they push me. You know, this sixth grader at a visit to the seminary, he says, who do you love more, your family or Jesus? Mm -hmm. And I thought, brilliant, let's talk. Because I hadn't, I had not thought about my family and Christ. Because normally I think about my family, I just think of them. So here I'm lacking a totally united mentality mm. that Christ be all in all in my life. And here this kid reminded me, I said, kid, when I love my family, what I love when I love my family has a face and a name and it's Jesus Christ. And that's the truth of who I love and everybody that I love. But I need things to wake me up to push me to remember that.
0: Events, yeah.
1: Events, yeah. I was at this wedding the other weekend and it was the wedding Saturday at 1.30 and this woman, she says to me, Father... Um, this is ridiculous. Why do we have to go to mass Saturday at 1.30? And now they're like, well, that doesn't count. You have to come back tomorrow. I okay. so, all right, let's talk. And I was so grateful for the provocation mm. that pushed me to say, okay, do I invent the relationship with Christ? Or is the relationship with Christ something objective outside of me that I needed to be in dialogue with? Yes. It, it's not an imposition, uh, because, okay, go to Mass if you want to or not, like, whatever. But live that conversation with Christ about why does the church ask us to come to Mass on Sunday? Yeah. Which I had the same problem the Friday before when I wanted to eat meat. And I was at Cracker Barrel. Like, <laughs> Cracker Barrel on a Friday and lunch. What
0: fish did you have at Cracker
1: Barrel? <laughs> no, no, that's the whole thing. It's like, I, I, there's no way I'm having fish for breakfast.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. It draws out of you, like, what is my desire? What is my desire right now? Is it to be with Christ? And what is that what does that look like? Cause right now it looks really bleak.
1: <laughs> exactly. What does this look like? And and does this look like yeah. the relationship with Christ is really just having less or living less? Exactly. You know? And um I was like, there's no way I'm gonna accept that. So I got I got the hash brown casserole, eggs, and biscuits and gravy, and I'm like, brilliant, brilliant, delicious. I don't need sausage, bacon. And ham to... Uh, and it became a moment of this recognition of Christ. So it was a help for me.
0: Yeah. So nothing is off limits. And this is what transforms all of life. And I think I, when I think of our mutual friends, they're some of the happiest people that I've ever met. But like I've told on the podcast, the story before a father Aldo down in Paraguay, who uh, wakes up every morning, deeply depressed. Like not all of these people have great personalities or wake up happy, but because reality becomes a chance for dialogue with him. And so the smallest thing can be lived in relationship to the universe, to totality, to the stars, Juseni would say. This is what morality means. And this is what makes us happy, is to live the particular relationship to the whole. And this is what sets us free. So I, I'm i so grateful. I think we could keep talking for another hour about, uh, about morality. But our time is running short, and I want to make sure that you're able to share with me and our listeners your recommendations of... What we can turn to in in contemporary culture, in culture in general, uh, to nourish our understanding of morality, because this is another beautiful thing about living morality as the relationship with Christ is the boundary line between sacred and secular is destroyed. Yeah. So I'm curious, what would you recommend in terms of a media for us?
1: Good. Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, I've i got three things and I know this- Bold. This, it feels greedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm thinking uh, Terrence Malick, okay,
2: mm. who as a
1: director, you know, his accolades are, I think, well known. The Tree of Life, specifically The Tree of Life. Okay. Because this movie is a prayer in two parts. And the first part is uh, a woman in front of a frustrated desire mm. because she's a mother whose child has died. And she's looking to God saying, why? Not only why did my child die, but why, why do we exist at all? if there's death. So here's this cry that's coming from her her need, and then God's response. And then in the second part, there's one of her children who is asking God, how did you call me to yourself? How did you romance me? And then he goes and reflects on his life. So it becomes this this kind of memory, not in the way that we were talking about. He's He's like looking back and allowing us to see it. But this is the way that Sign and reality coincide. So God calls us to Himself through reality. Yeah. Not through abstract things. Like this reality really is the university of life, and God is the professor and everything's an opportunity. Anyway, okay, there's 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 that. Um Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos. Excellent. The last self-help book. Yes. And, and this one, because because you know, my struggle with moralism always starts when my starting point is taken for granted everything else in life. Hmm. And just saying, I need to be like this. And then so I judge myself and I persecute myself. And Lost in the Cosmos has been the biggest help in book form to remember, to be in wonder about who I am and to actually be fascinated and surprised at the fact that I'm a creature like this and I have these needs and desires. Mm. So it brings me back to that. Plus, there's a five page meditation on suicide and depression that at a certain part of my so life good. I, I memorized. Oh, did you? I memorized that I used to say it to myself when i when I would be hearing confessions, wow, to remind me why I was there
2: um,
1: and the final book is I don't think a well known Joseph Roth, I think he's an Eastern European guy, uh The Legend of the Holy drinker. Never read it. It's a short novel. It's inspired by Trezel the zoo, a little way there's this this drinker, this drunk who lives under a bridge. And this guy had received a gift from St. Therese. And so he wants to to give it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So he meets this drunk, gives him money. And then this causes a chain of events that cause the guy's life to change in a way that's surprising. And so I won't say, of course, but you see how the Christian life doesn't mean, you know, becoming this, as we said before. So it's much more human. It's much more tender. And that like God's mercy really becomes the center of life and not my ability to correspond to a list of rules.
0: Mm, Thank you. That's excellent. I'm so excited to read those. I will post links in the show notes for all our listeners, as well as put it on the archive of our website, which is pilgrimsoulpodcast.com. What about a monthly challenge? Do you have an idea of something our listeners could do in order to grow in their living of their sin and morality in a true way? Yeah, this
1: is a tough one because how do you not fall into like self-help?
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yep. And, and so I saw, uh, I read a lot of the other, uh, recommendations, uh, on the podcast and, and I'd probably say like, what has been so helpful for me? Like yesterday, taking a walk, thinking about today's conversation, going through my life, I mean, was so helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, when we entered seminary, one of the first things they do is, is they tell you go through your life intentionally year by year and like really box it off like this year, what are the big things that happened? How did they change me? Like every year until today to help look at how God has romanced you. So I think that's why also like Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, it's slow enough that I think it's an invitation for you to be thinking about your life and how God has called you. Mm. So I think that would be a great practice to go through your life, even like, year by year, even in, in more than one sit down, because it takes a long time when you really get get into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. To strengthen our self-awareness of, of our desires and also our awareness, our memory of how the Lord has proposed himself as the answer to that. That's incredible. Foundation for begging, for living the relationship with him now, so... Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute delight. I will tell all of our listeners, if you enjoyed hearing from Father Mike, he publishes his homilies in podcast form. The podcast is called Church Talk, and I highly recommend it. It saves me from moralism and nihilism on a regular basis. So uh, go check him out there. I'm sure we can also pass on any messages if you'd like to send them to us. Our address is pilgrimsoulpodcast at gmail.com. May all of you have a most blessed month. I'll be back next month with another interview. And please do keep Adriana and Julie and their families in your prayers as they're expecting their new babies. God bless you.